So reading from the book of 1 John, chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For anything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, it's great to be returning to this, uh, to this great letter uh, from 1 John this morning. Uh, a great letter that's all about assurance. See, John wrote this letter to a church that went through um, some, um, some division because of false teaching. Uh, false teachers had come in, they made wrong claims about Jesus and about God, uh, and it caused great confusion and great unrest in that church, and eventually a split. Now, at the start of the letter, uh, you might remember, John reminded his readers uh, that he and others uh, who actually met Jesus in the flesh testified to who he is that he is God, that he came into the world physically and that forgiveness of sins and life eternal is found in him and through him alone. Uh, John's got this great reminder for his readers uh, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. It's the reason that John wrote this letter. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Great assurance that it is through Christ, uh, through, through faith in Christ and his actions and not our own that makes us right with God. Now, last time we came to 1 John, we were reminded that we can have confidence that we've come to know God if we seek to obey him. That is, uh, obedience to God, that's in response to what he's done for us, not to earn what he's done for us. And finally, we were reminded that those who obey God's commands Obey the command to love one another. See, as we accept God's love and respond in kind, that this means his love will shine through in our actions and attitudes toward one another as well. And this morning, today, we continue to find assurance in the words of 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. But we're also challenged to think about wrong love. That is, love that points in the wrong direction, that stems from the wrong motives. And we're challenged not to become complacent. Not to become complacent to when it comes to obeying the command to love God and not the world. Uh, when we're younger, uh, our parents and those older than us, they give us advice. They encourage us not to do certain things, to be wary of certain places, uh, to not stay out too late, to do well in school, that kind of thing. Uh, and my dad always gives helpful uh, and very practical advice. So I'd always been told by my dad growing up that when the sun is shining, 
It's a warm day if you're walking through long grass or walking near it or around big rocks that are in the sun. You need to watch out for a certain, you know, slithery something. Um, of course, the warning was watch out for snakes. Now, for the most part, uh, this advice, you know, I was pretty happy to listen to it, having seen pictures and videos of snakes that don't, they don't look that great, having seen them in the zoo, finding out how poisonous they are. Uh, I was pretty happy to keep my eyes open. But years went by, I didn't really see any. And, you know, gradually, while I would recognise that they're out there, it didn't really bug me that much. So I'd go out walking... I wouldn't pay as much attention to the long grass that was near me or to uh, the rocky ground that was in the sun or really to thinking much about snakes at all. That is, until one beautifully sunny day, I decided to go for a walk up the bluff right here in Victor Harbour and it was going so well. I was, I was walking up, it was a beautiful day to enjoy and I wasn't watching at all where I was going. That is, until I took one step forward, I glanced down and saw a long, thick, you know, brown stick lying across the path. It was probably about that far from the, the back of my ankle. Um, but then I looked closer, of course, and the stick actually started moving. Uh, and that's when I realised what was really lying across the path, uh, about two inches from my ankle, was the back of a massive, long, uh, brown, scaly snake enjoying the sunshine uh, near the long grass, lying on top of some rocks in the sun. Uh, they say you're meant to stay still or something, but I'm pretty sure no one's moved as quickly as I did in that moment. I jumped forward, I screamed um, in a pretty high-pitched kind of way. Um, <clears throat> there were people near as well, so that, wasn't, that was pretty embarrassing. Uh, I looked back, I saw the snake go back into the grass. I became complacent, and it almost cost me dearly. See, John's reminder for all of us in today's passage is watch out for snakes. Don't become complacent. Before we spend time in this passage, though, thinking about that, how about I pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing assurance that those who have faith in Christ can have. Thank you also for the challenge that we're presented with this passage today, not to love the world, but to love you. And as we reflect on your word together this morning, we ask that you would open our eyes to the areas in our life where we might fall into temptation to say yes to the world and no to you. We pray that you would grow us in our knowledge of who you are and our trust in you. And we pray that we would find great assurance in the truth, that you are our God, that we are your children. Amen. If you have a leaflet in front of you, you'll see that uh, there's a short outline. Uh, and the first point up the top there says assurance for those with faith in Christ. See, in verses 12 to 14, John is encouraging his readers. He wants to remind them of something. Now, reading through verse 12 to 14, one of the big questions that we're immediately faced with here uh, is who is John actually saying this to? There's these kind of three groups. Is it literally children, fathers and young men? Uh, is it to church leaders only? Is it, is it just to a group of men in the church? Who is he writing it to? Well, I think that John is not just addressing three different groups in the church, but is actually referring collectively to every single person that calls them a follower of Jesus. And here's why. See, throughout the letter, John refers to his readers constantly as children. 
in 1 John chapter 2 alone, five times he does this. So when John writes in verse 12 and 13 to children, he's referring to everyone. But what about fathers and young men? He's calling fathers and young men to pay attention here because they're the leaders in that church. That what he's saying to them is actually saying to those who follow their leadership as well. He wants everyone to pay attention to what he's about to say. And by referring to those in the church who are leaders of her households and uh, leaders in the church as well, he's emphasising the importance that they lead others to know these things as well. And by repeating himself in these verses, he's emphasising the assurance that those with faith in Jesus can have. And he's saying, everyone, listen up. And in this room this morning, we receive the same instruction, we receive the same assurance. So everyone... Let's listen. See, firstly, John addresses them as children. Both in verses 12 and verse 14, he does this. He says, I am writing to you because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name and because you know the Father. How do you approach God? How do you approach God? Is it with pride? Is it with uh, bags of money or wealth? Is it with promises that you'll be better or do better? Is it as an equal? Because what becomes clear in Scripture is that we cannot approach God as an equal. We can't approach God as anything close to worthy. We approach God as a child that is entirely dependent and trusting in God our Father to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And what we cannot do for ourselves is deal with the sins that we've committed against God. That rejection of God. But Jesus can. And Jesus has. And he did it by taking our place, by dying on the cross, so that we could be forgiven for sinning against God. Those who trust in Jesus, in what Jesus has done for us, become God's children. And that is what God calls us. He calls us his children. So I ask you, is this something that you know and that you rest in? Secondly, John addresses fathers. A modern day name might be elders. And by extension, those in the church who are looking to their leadership. John says in verses 13 to 14, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. As I said at the start, Um, False teaching about Jesus really threatened the early church. Uh, And this church that John is writing to had been through division. Had been uh, through division along with all the pain, the heartache and confusion that that brings along with it. And John's purpose in addressing the elder leaders in the church community is to reassure them against the false teaching of those who had left the church and to remind them they do know Jesus. The ones who brought division to the church didn't. What their lives consisted of became evident. And later on in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, uh, John says this. He says, who is the liar? It's whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now these are the lies that the false teachers were spreading, denying that Jesus is who he says he is. But John says, you know him. The one from 1 John chapter 1 verse 1 that John and the other apostles have been testifying to. The word of life who is Jesus. 
the church that John writes to has received and believed the good news about Jesus. Again, I ask you, is this something that you know and that you rest in as well? Knowing Jesus, having accepted the good news about who he is. Now, thirdly and finally, John addresses young men or up-and-coming leaders in verses 13 to 14. He says, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. See, the reference to, to strength here is, I think, relating to that kind of strength of youth. But here it's not relating to anything physical, but to spiritual strength. But it's a strength that comes from the word which dwells in us and which gives strength to overcome the evil one in the world. 1 John chapter 4 verse 4 says, You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. This in relation, of course, to the evil one, to Satan. Satan, who twisted God's word in the Garden of Eden uh, when Adam and Eve gave into temptation to sin, and who twisted God's word again in the wilderness with Jesus. And yet Jesus resisted that temptation, holding to what God said and his word, and not what Satan said. Now, often I think we can fall into that trap of thinking uh, that Satan is someone who's just going to jump out at us in the dark, They try to force us to do something terrible when the reality is completely the opposite. So he will seek to entice us with beautiful things, whispering in our ears, did God really say that? Did he really say don't do that? Is Jesus, you know, really who he says he is? But what John reminds all of us today is that the word of God dwells in us, dwells in those who accept Jesus and trust in him. And that the evil one is no match at all, not even close for God. We are reminded of both the reality that the evil one has been defeated and that we have no need to fear him. But what becomes evident is that we must remain wary of him with the strength that God gives us by his word to resist believing his lies and his tricks. Resisting to listen when he points and accuses, saying, we don't know God, saying, we do not have forgiveness. But these are lies. Those who trust in Jesus and follow him do know God, do have forgiveness on account of Jesus' name. Again, I ask the question, is this something that you know and that you rest in? John's purpose in writing this letter is so that his readers know this assurance that we are being reminded of this morning. Are these things that you know are true for you? Are these things that you rejoice in? Because if you've put your trust in Jesus, you can say with absolute confidence, yes. How incredible it is to have a God who gives us this assurance and yet asks for nothing in return by way of payment or by way of earning what he has given to us. Let's never lose sight of who it is that we follow and what he's done for us. John writes to assure his readers. But remember, John is addressing them this way, not just to reassure them, but to get their attention. He's saying, listen up. This next part is very important and you need to pay attention. It's the warning 
about complacency. See, John, he highlights a, a tension that's in verses 12 to 17, and that tension is this, that on the one hand, while those who follow Jesus have great assurance in no longer sitting under God's judgment, they, they rest in being safe in his love, on the other hand, those who follow Jesus are still living in the world, are still exposed to the temptation to love the world and not God. Temptation that would seek to pull us away from God and into sin. John exhorts his readers not to give in to loving the world and falling into that trap. See, he wants them and us to recognize the tension, to not become complacent. Do not love the world or anything in it. I said at the beginning that uh, previously in 1 John, John reminds the church of love that is directed correctly, uh, which comes from uh, God. But here, John is writing about a love which is disordered, that is wrong and stems from the wrong source. The love which he has previously written about, which is a good love, is a love which originates with God and his love for us. It's the command of Deuteronomy to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And also the command Jesus gives to his disciples. Love one another. As I have loved you, Jesus says, so you must love one another. But the love that John talks about now, which is a disordered love, is a love which is self-focused, which originates from the world. It's... Loving the world versus loving God. And John commands them, do not love the world or anything in the world. And he reinforces this command by arguing two points. Firstly, John says, if you love the world, you don't love God. If you love the world, you don't love God. In other words, John is saying here, you can't have a foot in both camps. See, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. The world being uh, its, its false desires, things that are in opposition to God. If something in the world takes God's place, uh, God's place in your heart, this is the wrong desire. This is wrong love. Jesus puts it this way uh, when he's talking about money in Matthew chapter 6. He says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. If you love the world, you don't love God. And John highlights uh, three things which characterise what loving the world and not God looks like. He fits these things into three categories, and it really is no surprise that these are the very same things that we struggle with today as well. Those things are firstly, lust of the flesh. Think idolizing sex. The second thing is lust of the eyes, like idolizing money or idolizing material possessions. The third thing is the pride of life, like idolizing uh, success or idolizing power and boasting in those things. These desires don't come from God, but come from the world. Uh, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, Tim Keller highlights these three things that um, men and women, everyone, can love before all else and can treat as their God. In other words, that they can idolise. 
That's sex, money, and success, or power. And he, he rightly says, I think, that the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. And he poses this question in his book that I think we should all be asking in this room, even if you're here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus. That question is this. What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? See, how we answer that question will indicate what we really love. How we answer that question, if we answer honestly, is actually a very confronting thing for all of us. Because if the thing that ultimately brings you comfort and joy is something that isn't God, then you are falling into that trap of loving the world You are idolizing something. Now, sex, uh, money, material possessions, success, power, these can all be good things. They all are good things. But what John is highlighting here is that we idolize these things and yearn after them because we think that they can satisfy and give us what God can't. But John's saying, don't buy the lie. They can't do that. And this is something that everyone in this room today must be wary of. You know, TV, radio, movies, advertising, music, we are surrounded by voices that tell us differently. We are sold a lie that we deserve to have it all, to have lots of money, to have that big house, a big family, good sex, good standing in society and work, and that these are acceptable pursuits. These are the epitome of what we pursue in life, that they bring happiness and satisfaction But that's a lie. And it's a lie that we are fooling ourselves with if we think we aren't impacted by these messages. We need all the reminders that John has just written to the church in his letter, just as they needed all of those reminders as well. Now, the correct question to ask at this point is, Well, how do I know if I'm really becoming complacent and loving the world where I should be loving God? Because the reality is we're all going to be doing this in different spheres of our lives without realizing it. Uh, In that same book, Counterfeit Gods, uh, Tim Keller puts forward this helpful tip uh, for recognizing if we love God or the world, if we're idolizing something in our lives. He says, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. He goes on. In other words, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? Do you develop potential scenarios about career advancement or material goods such as a dream home or a relationship with a particular person? One or two daydreams are not an indication of idolatry, but ask rather, what do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? Your religion 
is what you do with your solitude. And when you do find an idol in your heart, when you realise you are loving something as you should not be loving it, well, what do you do? Remember what John has reminded the church of in verses 12 to 14. We have forgiveness in Jesus' name. We know the Father. The word of God which dwells in us gives us strength. So repent of that love of the world and turn back to God. And remember that we can rejoice in forgiveness and rejoice in the embrace of a loving Father that no matter how long it might take to fully rid yourself of it, God will always be there with arms open and love pouring out to receive you. Remember that you aren't alone in this as well, that we all struggle with this. So let's love one another by pointing each other always back to Jesus' amazing love and the forgiveness that is found in him. The world will only ever offer a vacuum of cold lies that will never satisfy. And the second point that John makes really serves to highlight this for us. Verse 17 says, the world and its desires pass away. Argument one that John says is, don't love the world because if you love the world, you don't love God. Argument two is, don't love the world because the world and its desires pass away. The flesh, money and material possession, that uh, our successes, our power, these are temporary things and will not remain in this world. I don't think that's a mystery to anyone here. So why would you throw your lot in with things that will turn to dust and that will just leave you facing the consequences for your decision to do so? It just doesn't make any sense. And yet John still needs to remind his readers that this is a reality and to not become complacent, to watch out for snakes. Do not love the world or anything in it, but rather delight in him who can truly satisfy, truly give comfort and bring joy and safety and fulfilment. He has given everything so that you can have a future with him. He has given himself so that you can have a future with him. That is the great reminder that John gives us in the last verse of this passage today. The world and its desires pass away, yes, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. We have a future with God. And what is the will of God? Well, we've heard it all throughout this letter, haven't we? Putting your trust in Jesus and walking in the light by his side. Trust in Jesus who has dealt with that massive canyon that existed between God and us. Who has given his life in our place so that we can know God and have fellowship with him. Who doesn't ask you to earn it or pay it off or impress him. Who just asks that you trust him and what he's already done for you. And if you're here this morning and this isn't a decision that you've made yet, God wants you to choose him. And he's waiting with open arms. If you haven't responded to Jesus' invitation yet to follow him, to know his love and care for you, he wants you to trust him. He will not fade away like everything in this world. He will never let you down. Uh, this morning, for those of us who say that we are followers of Christ, well... 
Watch out for snakes. Don't become complacent and think that you won't fall into the snare of loving the world instead of God. Continually ask yourself that question. What do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your heart? And remember that we can turn to him when we do get this wrong. We can ask for forgiveness knowing that he is a God who gives it. I'm going to pray a prayer now, confessing when we do get this wrong, and a prayer that professes renewed faith in Jesus and desire to follow him. It's a prayer that I invite everyone in this room to follow along with in your heads and in your hearts. And if you find you're praying this prayer for the very first time, that's great. I would love to meet with you and talk about what that means, as would anyone on staff here or any of the leaders at church. So please don't keep that to yourself. But for now, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are our loving God. You alone are worthy of our worship, worthy of praise. Father, we repent and are sorry for the times when we turn to the things of this world in worship and choose to love them instead of you. We repent and are sorry of our rejection of you, Lord, and the sin in our lives. Thank you for the confidence we can have in your forgiveness through Jesus. We know that this has nothing to do with what we can offer and everything to do with what you've already done for us and your son. Thank you for Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Thank you for forgiveness in his name. We pray for the strength to resist sin. Please help us to follow Jesus every day of our lives, to keep our eyes fixed on him. Father, we thank you for your incredible love for us. Thank you that we can call ourselves your children. Amen. Well, after we sing, we're going to have a time of reflection. Uh, the screen will in invite you to have a seat and, and to reflect. Uh, there is a, this quite a hard-hitting message in some ways, isn't it? Um, you know, that idea that of, of trying to keep, our, keep a foot in both camps. Uh, I think we find that very hard to believe, that you can't keep a foot in both camps. I think... Often, you know, what, what Jack hasn't said today is that, you, you, you know, we need to love God a little more and the world a little bit less. What he's basically saying is that you can't love both. But I think sometimes we think we can. I think we sometimes think, well, today I'm going to go away and try and love God just a little bit more and maybe just love a few other things a little bit less. Um, God is saying to us, Jesus is saying to us, no, you, we've got to, we need to put our hearts uh, in, in with him. So as you reflect, I, there might be many different ways that you reflect. You might uh, pray. This is all the solitude, isn't it? We get a chance in our own solitude for a few moments just to think, what, you know, what do we need to do? You might pray to God, commit yourself in prayer, or you might jot some notes down. You could even use the tear-off slip and send some notes, you know, some, a word of encouragement to Jack or to us or whatever about what you're thinking about. Uh, you could be thinking through some of the priorities some of the things that you have been reflecting on in your own solitude at other times. So uh, let's, let's stand together now and sing This Life I Live and then, and then let's do business with God in our hearts. <laughs> 